I have a friend who, uh, her job this year at her church was to set up the Advent wreath and the lighting of the candles. This is a new thing for her. It's not typically practiced at her church, and so she did a little research, but was deeply concerned, she told me, that she might not have gotten it right. She said, uh, because I did all this reading, and the candles can be all kind of a a burgundy color, or, or they can be blue, and one of them has to be pink, and she was kind of panicky, and she said, what if I didn't do it right, as though there'd be a rift in the heavens if the candle colors weren't done exactly correctly. I'm not sure why she was pleading her case to me, but she thought I knew something. And I said, well, you know, I know of at least one Anglican church that is not restricted by shame because of the colors (laughs) of their candles. We do live in freedom of the season. Uh, And the themes of Advent are so beautiful. Um, The themes capture what I think we desire in this time of revisiting the story of the birth of Jesus. And we've engaged so far with the themes of of hope and peace and joy, expressions that are, are clearly warm and generous, but also somewhat elusive in times like these that are marked by significant disorder and uncertainty in the world. We want all of those expressions, I think, in our lives, but it can be challenging for us when we feel as though we're, we're always kind of looking over our shoulder, perhaps waiting for the next disastrous news report to cast a shadow over the season. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why this season is so important for us, because it draws us back to the center of God's intentions for us and for the world. And so in this final Sunday of Advent, we, we celebrate the theme of love. And we move from the anticipation of something that God might do to the expectation that God will be doing something, even in ways that violate people's understanding about how things are supposed to work in the world. And we saw this this morning in the Gospel reading. We hear Mary questioning the angel Gabriel, uh, wondering, after his announcement, how it is that she is supposed to become pregnant. Now, we understand that Mary was probably fairly young, but she was old enough to know where babies came from. And so this announcement would have brought a little bit of confusion in her life, and she asks a very legitimate question of Gabriel. He seems to be fairly comfortable with the asking. Um, But she was still a little confused about how this might work. To a very, very small degree, I understand that confusion. I experienced a bit of that when I was young, not because I knew where babies came from, but because I didn't. I was eight years old when my brother came into my family. He was adopted at birth, but I had no clue that he was even on the way. My parents are of the generation that still believes that their offspring should not know certain things about how life works. And uh, so they don't tell you a lot of details about important things of life. All I knew is that my paternal grandparents had shown up from the state of Washington. I I was thrilled. I love my grandparents. Hadn't seen them for a very long time. And there was all this commotion going on in the house. I, I thought it was great fun to have my grandparents visiting. Uh, even though I didn't have a clue as to why they were even there. And so, uh, I went to bed that night, hoping for a fun time the next day. 
only to discover in the morning a white bassinet on a little pedestal right in the middle of our living room. And inside of that bassinet was this little red, wrinkled creature that I soon learned was my new brother, Dave. Now, I thought this was great. I was happy about it. It was a surprise to me. It was great not only because I had a brother. I didn't have any siblings. I had a brother, but also the mystery of procreation had now been solved for me. (laughs) Where do babies come from? You just go out to some baby store in the dark of night and pick up one for yourself. That's what it looked like to me. Just like that, you just have some kid in your house. It caused me to wonder, where had my parents purchased me? Well, when I went back to school a day or so later, I was very excited for my turn in the morning ritual of sharing in my third grade class. And uh, when I announced that I had a new baby brother, that was big news. My teacher, Mrs. Farley, who knew my mom, said, I, I didn't even know your mother was pregnant. I didn't know what she was even talking about. And I said, she wasn't. <laughs> well, of course she wasn't. She just went to the store. It's, it's mystery solved. And so in my own simple way, I kind of get Mary's confusion about how things are supposed to work in the world. Our expectations can become a kind of lens for how we see things in life. And they can also be a lens for how we interpret what God is actually doing. It's very interesting to me how how Luke crafts the story of Gabriel announcing the, uh, the birth of Jesus yet to come right on the heels of Gabriel's conversation with Zechariah. the the elderly priest who would at some point in the future become John the Baptist's father. Zechariah also questions the angel about John's birth, expecting surely that people as old as he and his wife uh, would never have children. Again, a, a reasonable expectation. In his question, however, Zechariah kind of implies that perhaps a second opinion would be in order here. Uh, how, How will I know that this is to be? And so Gabriel grants him what he needs. He grants him a sign. The sign, of course, is that Zechariah can't talk anymore until the child is born and then is named. So Zechariah's exchange with Gabriel is marked with just a little tiny bit of cynicism, while Mary's exchange is marked by curiosity and devotion and even obedience. So in both situations, we see that God was at work But so were the expectations of the people. Our own expectations can can steer us away from what God is actually doing. As I suggested last week, we engage with the seasons of Advent and Christmas from the vantage point of the table that Jesus has prepared for us. And in this season, we remember the story of Jesus' birth in the past We engage with his table in in the present, and we look forward in the future to that great banquet feast when God reconciles all things in heaven and earth to himself. But our imaginings about that great table might also be fraught with particular expectations about how things ought to be set up and who should be allowed to be there. Most of us are probably grateful that that we have a place 
at that table, but we may not be so sure about all those other sketchy people. Viewing faith through the lens of past expectations has been an issue for followers of Jesus since the earliest days of the church. Jesus was Jewish. His first followers were Jewish. Most of that drama took place in Israel. So it was very easy and even reasonable for people to frame their newfound faith in Jesus within the constructs of first century Judaism. It just makes sense. We would probably have done the same thing. But that framework was fractured as non-Jewish people, Gentiles, were responding to the message about Jesus and even experiencing the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And, and having experienced this phenomenon, a lot of questions came up. Was it now irrelevant to be Jewish? Did Gentiles need to become converts to Judaism in order to be legitimate followers of Jesus? And, and how would this increasingly diverse community of believers learn how to be together, where up to that point they had learned pretty well how not to be together? Well, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church in Rome that we heard this morning, expertly expresses God's favor toward both Jew and Gentile without actually giving priority to either one. And he sums up the situation clearly. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is a great theological statement. It's one that should break down all of the dividing walls that exist and open up the hearts of the people of God toward one another and toward the rest of the world. And yet, we continue to struggle with God's love and generosity because even with great theological statements to guide us, we still have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And sometimes that causes us to wonder, when we think of that great table, who's, who's really in and who's really out? Well, the birth narrative of Jesus in our Gospels offers us just a bit of a hint about this. At his birth, Jesus does not find favor with the religious power brokers among his people. Those who are, are drawn to him are really the most unlikely of suspects. We see poor shepherds who would have, for the most part, been on the lowest rung of the social ladder in that culture. We see Persian astrologers whose views of the world and faith would contrast sharply with those of the Jewish people. Even Egyptians who end up making space for Joseph and Mary and Jesus when they have to flee their home. Even later on in the story, Jesus reaches out to tax collectors and a Roman centurion and some Samaritans and any number of folks categorized as either sinners or unclean or both. People in that time and place would have, who, have, who have, would have been seen clearly as out. The supporting actors in the story of Jesus are just not the ones that you would expect. Let's take a minute, let our imaginations allow this story to impact some of our expectations. 
In Advent, we, we recognize that we sit at the table of Jesus, looking back at the coming of his birth while simultaneously looking forward to his coming again. And so we sit between those times, and our perspective comes from the vantage point of Jesus' table, expressed in our regular celebration of the Eucharist. But imagine that, that this relatively small table of ours suddenly expands and stretches out to the farthest horizon. And instead of just lining up, as we do, for bread and wine, in this imagination, we find ourselves approaching a table that has countless settings. And we're thrilled to find our own names printed very neatly on little cards, uh, indicating places that are reserved for us. And upon taking our seats, we notice that others are also taking their seats, their faces lit up by, by the hope and the joy of the moment. But they're kind of an odd mix of people, really. Some of them violating our own cultural and religious sensibilities in, in a similar way that, that the earliest followers of Jesus might have been scandalized by the Samaritans and the Romans and the tax collectors that Jesus seemed to favor. Nevertheless, we're all at table together, warmed by the love of God that permeates this space that we share. And as we look into one another's eyes, maybe somewhat strange and foreign and unqualified eyes in our estimations, we suddenly realize that the righteousness of God has been disclosed through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. At this table, God in Christ is with us. Heaven and earth have, have come together just as God's intentions and human expectations collided in the stories of Zechariah and Mary. And as the psalmist declared to us this morning, love and faithfulness will meet. Righteousness and peace will kiss. Faithfulness will spring up from the ground and righteousness will look down from the sky. In Advent, we celebrate Jesus' birth and we also anticipate his return. But in that, all of our expectations are shattered as we wait at the table that he has prepared for us. And that's really as it should be. Jesus has always been in the business of taking down expectations. Expectations that honor tradition over God's work in the world. That desire sameness over God's desire that in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male and female. That there can be any other king except the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Ishmael, and Jesus. And as we once again revisit our season of waiting, right between the times of Jesus' coming, we are reminded that our posture is to be one 
of love. And the love that comes from God breaks down all of our expectations. Living as we do in a culture that is so permeated by anger, fear, uncertainty, suspicion, violence, and divisiveness, we are called to come peacefully to the table of Jesus, a a table that is bathed in his love. We're called to love God, to love one another in the family of faith, to extend that love to all people, to love our enemies, and to pray for those who persecute us. And in that call to love, we come to realize that the table of Jesus is bigger and more generous than we have ever expected. Jesus has come. Jesus will come again. And Jesus is with us now, inviting us to come and dine in his love. And I want to close this morning with these words from 1 John. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed to us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. Amen.